Well, I just want to give you a little bit of a personal word before we uh, start back in on 1 Corinthians 6, and it's connected with this, with this passage, and that is that these, uh, as we've been walking through 1 Corinthians, particularly these last couple of chapters, that these have been very difficult uh, subjects that we've been trying to tackle here as we've uh, attempted to follow um, Paul's letter to the church at Corinth. And they've been difficult because they're not merely ancient subjects that are relevant to a no longer uh, existent first century city. This letter was written in ancient times and it was written to an ancient city, but these are not ancient issues. These are contemporary issues. They are relevant issues that are universal in their scope. They are not time-bound issues. They are timeless And what has made these passages and the ones to come uh, particularly difficult is that we've all dealt with these issues and we've all failed on many accounts. Even as a church, we have failed. Uh, And that's that's, uh, the context in which this was written. It was written to a church. Um, Many of us individually have failed in these areas before we became Christians, and many of us have failed since we've become Christians. And so I want to um, start with this, and in, in most sermons I end with this, or it comes closer to the end, but today I want to start with it, and that is that thanks be to God for Jesus. Thanks be to God for forgiveness. Thanks be to God for the gospel. Jesus faced these same temptations that we face, and yet where he failed, or where we failed, he remained without sin. And we can put our faith in his perfection, knowing that he abs- absorbed the punishment for our failures. And so when it concerns the subject before us today, I just want you to know that whatever has occurred in your past, you can be forgiven through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. There is no more condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. Because of Jesus and through your repentance and faith, God will not hold your sin against you. Satan can no longer hold your sin against you even though he will try to keep accusing you. He is the accuser of the brethren, and he will continue to do that. But he can't hold it against you. It's already been paid for. And now we'll, we'll see in a bit that this gospel in no way gives you an out to keep on sinning. It actually empowers you to go and to sin no more. But I just wanted to say all that, just to say that we want to tackle this particular issue with humility and with grace. I certainly do not want to come across as condemning because I struggle with many of the same things. The Bible tells us in John 16 that the Holy Spirit will convict the world of sin, uh, world of sin or concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. And so where that needs to happen, I'm going to leave him to do that work. And he'll do that, it says later in John 16, through the word of God right after that passage where it talks about the fact that he'll convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment, it says that the Holy Spirit will guide you into all truth. And that's exactly where we want to go today. This is the nice thing about going through the books of the Bible verse by verse. And it's also the hard thing about going through books of the Bible verse by verse. You can't skip over parts that might get uncomfortable. But all of this together makes up the Word of God. When Paul instructed churches, he told them to not shrink from declaring the whole counsel of God. And so that's what we do. 
and we know full well that this is a subject for which we desperately need to hear God's word. The world tries to tell us how we ought to think about this, and it doesn't do so silently or it doesn't do so in hushed tones. It, it doesn't shrink back, and so we ought not to shrink back either. Well, up to now, I've talked about this as this subject, but I haven't named it. If you took a sneak peek ahead and issue to uh, 1 Corinthians 6, 12 to 20, the issue here is the body. Now, two weeks ago, Pastor Jim Houston preached from 1 Corinthians 5 and gave a bit of a warning for parents of children. And for those uh, same reasons, I'm going to use my uh, second favorite Bible translation today, the New American Standard Version. Because it translates the Greek word porneia simply as immorality. Now, I don't do that to be prudish or to be puritanical or to somehow avoid the subject. We don't need to avoid the subject because the proper use of this subject is a gift from God to be enjoyed when it's used the way that God designed it. But I just want to be uh, sensitive and subtle in thinking about this subject. And so when I say immorality, just realize that in this passage, it's not talking about immorality in general. It's talking about immorality in connection with the body and in particularly outside of the marriage covenant, before marriage or during marriage. So with all that in mind, open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 12 to the end of the chapter. Paul writes, All things are lawful for me, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. Food is for the stomach, and stomach is for food, but God will do away with both of them. Yet the body is not for immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord is for the body. Now God has not only raised up the Lord, but will also raise us us up through his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take away the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? May it never be. Or do you not know that the one who joins himself to a prostitute is one body with her? For it says the two shall become one flesh. But the one who joins himself to the Lord is one spirit with him. Flee immorality. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body, but the immoral man sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? For you've been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. Studying this subject and doing just a little bit of research into this subject this week has made it very clear to me that the issues are the same today as they were when Paul wrote this. Our world has just gotten a little bit more sophisticated in how we talk about these things. But that sophistication has actually only served to make the issue even worse. The whys of the world have just taken what to anyone with any sense of conscience is a problem, and they are now on a wholesale campaign to try to normalize it. And they're succeeding at an amazing rate. The first step in justifying an action is always to normalize it. And the modern way of normalizing something is to do a study and then to gather statistics. 
And usually they make those statistics, um, they make them mean what they want them to mean and to say what they want them to say. And in this case, if enough people are found to be practicing something that has previously been thought to be immoral, then it's no longer spoken of negatively if they can find enough people that do that particular action. The word immorality conjures up negative images. And so the next step is to rename it and to redefine the practice. Case in point. This week I learned a number of new terms from a lady who is an anthropologist and, was, and, and actually herself commissioned a study on the concept of human love. She took a number of couples at various stages of relationship, asked them some questions, and managed to find some amazing results. Last week, an article came out that summarized the results. And just listen and see if you can hear the, uh, the redesignation of immorality and the attempt to kind of just subtly sort of normalize these actions. She found that, number one, pair bonding is a hallmark of humanity. Now, all that means is that her studies prove that most people get married. I know, shocking. But did you notice the subtle language shift? It's no longer called marriage. It's called pair bonding. But in asserting that, she also found that monogamy is decreasing statistically. And the major contributor to that is, of course, sin. No, that's not what she found. Of course not. One of the major contributors to that is something she calls brain architecture. Certain brain functions that used to direct love toward one person have now evolved to be multi-directional. Well, next, she found that, and I quote, myriad psychological, cultural, and economic variables played a role in the frequency and expression of infidelity. Now, you need to notice just in that statement how that takes the personal responsibility away from our actions and finds that other factors outside of human control lead to these actions. Then listen to this one. A recent survey found that mate poaching is a pronounced trend. You say, what is mate poaching? Well, it's trying to woo an individual away from a committed relationship to begin a relationship with them instead. So there's another new term. And finally, she's discovered that sh uh, studies show the possibility of a gene that correlates to infidelity. <laughs> studies show the possibility of a gene that correlates to infidelity, and that's always a good science trick. <laughs> studies show the possibility. So that doesn't sound very conclusive, but that's science. But again, here we have a, a move away from any personal responsibility. First it was uh, psychological factors, and now it's a gene. And so that's sort of the trend that's happening, the sort of redefinition, the sort of taking personal responsibility away from self, this move away from calling sin, sin. Calling something immoral, you know, it's, it's got to be redefined as something else because immoral is, is not a good term. It's something negative. But when we get to our passage, it identifies immorality clearly as sin. Verse 18, flee immorality. Every other sin, 
that a man commits is outside of his body, but the immoral man sins against his own body. And we're going to get back to that verse, but I pointed it now, pointed out now, just to point out that for Paul, he didn't try to glorify immorality or excuse immorality. To him, it was clearly a sin. So let's see what this section is telling us. For Christians, the last line is the main point. We are to glorify God with our bodies. Paul is going to make his case here for why we ought to do that. And he starts out by looking at the situation and the attitudes that had crept in among those Corinthian Christians. He actually starts with their assumptions to to begin his case. And their assumptions had to do with their perceived freedoms, their perceived liberty. Here's where the uh, English Standard Version, and if you have the New New International Version, the translators helped us out a bit so we could see this a bit better. When you see those words, all things are lawful for me, in in verse 12, it's best to put quotes around those words. Because most biblical scholars would agree that Paul is actually just here quoting a slogan from the Corinthians. This is what they were saying all the time. And then he sort of refutes it. And they were saying this to excuse different kinds of behavior. They were doing the same thing as that anthropologist. They jumped to the conclusion that their new freedom as Christians allowed for all kinds of behavior, including immorality. They, like today, lived in a promiscuous culture. Immorality was rampant even in around the temples and in the religious centers of that day. But instead of standing apart from those practices, these Corinthian Christians were participating in them. And if someone questioned them, they would just use the slogan, all things are lawful for me. Now you have to know that in reality, Paul taught exactly that. Only he meant something different than how they came to mean it. When Paul says in Galatians 5 verse 1, it was for freedom that Christ set us free, he meant that we didn't have to do works anymore to earn God's favor. That's what he meant by that. But they just took it as a blanket freedom to do whatever they wanted, yet still be covered by the grace of God. But they obviously ignored Paul's clarifying statements, such as, just down a little bit, in that same letter in Galatians 5.13, where he writes, Do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh. But the Corinthian Christians did exactly that. They took that teaching as a license to gratify their natural desires, to feed their appetites, to justify their actions. They were actually using a theological concept to excuse their immorality. Sadly, that happens a lot in our day too. And in some ways we're all guilty of doing that. We can actually take even Christian principles and we tweak them just a little bit so that they justify our actions. And that's what these Corinthian Christians were doing to gratify their bodies. All things are lawful for me. Like I said, immorality was rampant in that culture. And rather than distance themselves from it, the the Christians there not, not only joined in these actions, but then tried to justify them. But they totally misapplied their freedom. And Paul jumps right on that. First he says, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are profitable. He's saying, you're right. I believe that too. All things are lawful for me. But that doesn't mean that sin is good. 
Sin is never good. Sin is never worthwhile. Sin is always harmful. And it's especially so with this kind of immorality in connection with the body. John MacArthur writes this about immorality. He says, No sin that a person commits has more built-in pitfalls, problems, destructiveness than porneia, than immorality. It has broken more marriages, shattered more homes, caused more heartache and disease, and destroyed more lives than alcohol and drugs combined. It causes lying, stealing, cheating, and killing, as well as bitterness, hatred, slander, gossip, and unforgiveness. If you want to see this in another place where the writer makes it very vivid, go to Proverbs 5 and read that chapter in your own time sometime. The first nine chapters of Proverbs, we learned when we went through the first chapter of Proverbs a little while ago, are advice from a father to his son. And so here the father warns his son about the danger of the adulteress. This is the Bible's version, kind of a, a part of the, the birds and the bees talk from the Bible. But the point is that this particular sin is alluring and enticing. It seems pleasurable and nice, but in the end, Proverbs 5 says, it's as bitter as wormwood. And so the father's advice is run. He says, keep your way far from her and do not go near the door of her house. It's just saying, stay away from anything that has the potential of getting you into trouble. Avoid dangerous situations. For those of you that are uh, young and uh, single or maybe even older and single, don't put yourself into situations where temptations lurk, where passions have the opportunity to get wound up. My advice to young people is to avoid situations where you're alone with someone of the opposite sex, especially at night. Those are dangerous situations. That's going near the door of her house. I encourage you rather to put up safeguards. so You, you know where the door of the house is for you. Stay away from it. A good literal illustration of running from that kind of temptation is Joseph. When he ran away from Potiphar's wife in Genesis 39. When she grabs his garment, it says that he left his garment in her hand and fled and went outside. In other words, he got out of there. The New Testament equivalent to that is 1 Corinthians 6 verse 18. Flee immorality. Some who think that Paul was taking this from, um, from Joseph's life there with that, in that example with Potiphar's wife. But all that to point out that not all things are profitable. In fact, immorality is never profitable. It is always harmful. Well, Paul's other comeback to their claim that all things are lawful is, but I will not be mastered by anything. It's in the second part there of, chapter, of verse 12. The word there, for mastered or dominated is, is authority. Paul is implying that immorality is a dominating, controlling sort of thing. It's enslaving. Pornography is an example of that in our culture. It is uh, so easily ex- accessible in our day, in, our, in this digital world in which we live, and it's so enslaving that it becomes sort of a, a controlling sort of thing. It can take hold of someone. It can have authority over them. But as Christians, Paul is saying, you are no longer mastered by anything. 
we aren't enslaved to anything other than to Christ himself. And so when those things start to take hold of us, we just need to recognize this truth that through Christ we've been given all the resources that we need not to become enslaved to those sort of things. Because we have a new Lord, we have a master. Nothing else needs to have mastery over us. And then Paul just kind of keeps on going with their philosophy of life. So here's another one of the things that they were saying. Food is for the stomach and the stomach is for food. But God will do away with both of them. Yet the body, here's Paul now, yet the body is not for immorality but for the Lord. And the Lord is for the body. In that culture's way of thinking, having their bodily appetites fed was about the same thing as having their stomach's appetites fed. They were no different. Both are just feeding different appetites. It was sort of a a casual view on immorality. Immorality just uh, just gratifies an appetite. Food met the stomach's need and fornication meets the body's need. And so they just went ahead and fed their appetites however they wanted. And this is where Paul says, no, stop right there. It's not the same. Why isn't it the same? Because the body has a connection to the Lord. And the first connection there is in terms of the permanent nature of the body. God will indeed do away with food and with the stomach, but the body is altogether different. It has an altogether different quality. And it has to do here with the resurrection. Look at verse 14. Now God has not only raised the Lord, but will also raise us up through his power. What's he saying here? He's saying that the body matters now because it's going to matter in the future. In the end, there's, there's going to be no need for digestion in order to keep the body living. So food and the stomach are temporary. They are needed now, but not in eternity. But our bodies are permanent. In some ways, our present bodies will be uh, resurrected and recognizable. And because that's true, Paul's point is that we need to pay attention to how we use our bodies now. Just as the Lord's body was raised and was recognizable after his resurrection, God will also raise up your bodies. So, back to verse 13, the body is not for immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. Your body has a permanent quality, and and that fact makes your body significant to the Lord. There's a spiritual relationship here, not just a physical one, like food in the stomach. Your body is for the Lord. Just like we read before from Philippians 3, Jesus will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory. The case for permanence. Well, thirdly, there is uh, a case from union in verses 15 to 17. Now Paul really starts to really center in on and hone in on this problem of immorality for a Christian. He nails down the incongruity between a life of morality and the life of a Christian. It comes down to a universal truth that started before creation, before sin even entered the world. And so in verse 16, Paul quotes from Genesis chapter 2. Now you have to remember back here, Adam and Eve uh, ate from the forbidden tree, In Genesis 3. This is before that. 
In God's original design between the man and the woman in Genesis 2.24, he says this, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. The key word there is joined, and the other key word is one. Now go back over to 1 Corinthians 6, verses 15 and 16. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I take away the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. May it never be. Or do you not know that the one who joins himself, there it is, to a prostitute is one body with her? For he, God says the two shall become one flesh. Here's what this is all about. This is all about joining and oneness. And these Christians in Corinth should have known better. Twice he says, do you not know? When it comes to the use of the body for intimacy, there is a joining, a a union that takes place. Two become one. That's just the way God designed humans. And so what we have here is an argument not just from morality, but from creation. And not only is there a relationship between man and woman, but there's a relationship between humans and God. In fact, there are connections here everywhere. There are horizontal connections or, or this way, horizontal connections between the man and the woman. There are vertical connections between humanity and God. And there are spiritual connections. Verse 15, between the Christian and Christ. And you can see that spiritual connection there again in verse 17 especially. But your body's Christians are members of Christ. Members really just means, the way that Paul's using it here, just body parts. This is just pointing to the rich and profound truth that this is the believer's union with Christ. When you become a Christian, you are one with your forgiveness is in Christ. You were chosen before the foundations of the world in Christ. Your hope is found in Christ. And it just goes on and on. That concept, that truth needs to be so embedded in you that you will do nothing to misrepresent that truth. Immorality, my dear brother and my dear sister, misrepresents the beautiful, blood-wrought truth, blood-bought truth as well of union with Christ. How? God designed the joining of a man and a woman to happen within the context of marriage. Genesis 2.24 talks about, listen to it again, the man shall be joined to his wife and they shall be one flesh. By joining to a prostitute, they were not doing anything to the one flesh part of that. Did you notice that? It didn't affect the one flesh part of that by joining to a prostitute. That part still holds true. And therein lies the problem. What they were disobeying was being joined to a prostitute rather than a wife. And because there's a mysterious connection there, Ephesians 5 talks about how this is a mystery between the union of a husband and a wife and between, the, between Christ and a Christian, the very act of being joined with a prostitute is, number, is verse 15, to take away, literally means to rip away the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute. And that's what is incomprehensible and reprehensible. It profanes the name of Christ. It adds a seriousness to immorality that is unlike any other sin. There is a, there's a common modern way of referring to this kind of immorality before marriage or even after marriage. It's described as being casual. 
Well, this truth here in verses 15 and 16 flies right in the face of that. This kind of immorality is anything but casual. So finally, in verses 18 and 20, Paul closes here with two exhortations. Flee immorality, in verse 18, and glorify God in your body, verse 20. Those are the two exhortations in these verses, the two commands two imperatives. And in between, he makes the case from redemption. In verse 18, just note, after the command to run and flee, which we talked about already, he makes an interesting observation here about uh, the sin of immorality. It's almost a comparison of sorts. He says, every other sin that a man commits is outside the body, but the immoral man sins against his own body. You know, we like to say that that sin is sin and, and that all sins are the same. One sin is not worse than any other sin. Yet here Paul seems to be saying that there is something different about immorality. I think that while no sin is worse than any other sin, I I believe that fully, and while all sins are an offense against the holy God, sin against the body are not a worse sin, but they are unique in their character and nature. Immorality has a way of affecting a person deep inside in a way that other sins don't. And because the body is permanent, and because there is this intimate connection with Christ, there's just something about sins against the body that make them not worse, but unique. And so then Paul closes with these great gospel realities. Do you not know that your temple is a body of the Holy Spirit? Or that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God. And that you are not your own. You have been bought with a price. That's redemption. Therefore glorify God in your body. Those things in verse 19, that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, who you have from God, Those truths should really just be enough, shouldn't they? To get us to say, I need to keep my body pure and to use it in a way that God designed it to be used. Your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. Why would any Christian want to desecrate the temple? Think of it this way. Whenever a Christian or Christians commit this kind of immorality, it's like they're doing that in God's sanctuary. And then this great truth, you are not your own. For you have been bought with a price. This is a reminder of what we celebrated just before here in the Lord's Supper. This brings us full circle, doesn't it? We went from the Lord's Supper to a reminder for me at the beginning of this message that no sin is beyond forgiveness to God. We were all slaves to sin, but God redeemed you. He purchased you with a purchase price being the pure and innocent blood of His own Son. So if you are a Christian here today, you need to know that you are forgiven. If you have failed in this area, confess your sins. And the promise of 1 John 1, 9 is that the one who is faithful and just will cleanse you from all your unrighteousness. But then go and sin no more. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, you need to know that whatever you have done in this area of immorality, however you have sinned in that area, you need to know that you can be forgiven. Admit your sins to God. 
believe that Jesus paid for your sins by dying on the cross. And if you do that, your body will now belong to God. As shameful, maybe even as dirty as you might feel now, he will cleanse you completely. He'll take it all away, every spot, through his perfections, through his shed blood. Now go, all of you, and glorify God in your body. That's the upshot of this. We can now glorify God in our body. Reserve your body to honor and to obey and to worship and to glorify God. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the hope that is found in this portion of your word, this very difficult portion of your word. There is warning, there is admonition, there's correction, but there's also hope. We thank you for the hope of forgiveness that comes through your Son. We thank you that we have been bought with the price, that you have redeemed us, that Christ has paid for our sins through his death on the cross. And we thank you for our bodies, bodies that will one day be raised. The same power that you exerted to raise your Son will you will also exert to raise our bodies. It's in light of that sure hope, I pray that you would help us to flee immorality and to glorify God in our bodies. And now, our Father, as we have an opportunity to fellowship together as a church body, as one body, we want to thank you for the food that smells so good. <laughs> and that you have provided for us. And we thank you for fellow believers with whom we share a common faith. Bless our time together, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.